Tonight, we're giving it all away. We're finally reaching the aspect that I said we would end with a little bit on giving. Part of this talk deals with poverty as well, but really, I think we know the statistics enough around the world about what's going on. I'm not going to insult your intelligence by just reading you all the stories about how many people are dying every minute to try to get you into some guilt trip about what we need to be doing. I think we kind of know what's going on. And I think when we watched Invisible Children, that was kind of our wake-up call that at least one thing has come to our attention. Here's where we've been, just as a quick review. The reason we covered getting out of debt is we were learning how to free ourselves from the bondage of debt so we could free up funds for the kingdom. So step one, we said, was to get out of debt just to do that. Then we spent a week on budgeting or some time on budgeting so that we could identify other places that we could cut and free up even more funds. Those were the first steps in realizing that we need to live a life free of debt and one that we at least know where our money's going so that we have a source of funds freed up. We then launched into savings, learning to set aside money first, right off the top, so that we would at least begin to save for our own purposes and for the kingdom purposes, both. Christ has an interest in having us free of debt in this life as well as for his purposes as well. They're all one and the same, or they should be, because our entire life should be focused on ministry in a way. Then we spent some time last week and the week before, actually two weeks ago, we spent some time on investing. Now that you've freed up a little bit of funds from debt and from budgeting, now that you've saved some money right off the top and you make a commitment to continually saving, how you invest that money to use the power of multiplying and compounding interest so that you could grow that money into a large amount that you could use for kingdom purposes. Let's go to the next slide. Last week, I think we had a little bit, like I called it, a sharp left turn. We spent some time wrestling with materialism. The grip it has on our lives, the sinful nature of materialism, how blind we are to materialism all around us and how much it invades every part of our life. That's where we were last week. And you can see that we're escalating along this scale. Get out of debt, frees up some funds. Budget better, frees up more funds. Invest, or I'm sorry, save money, now you're actually adding to what you've already freed up. And then invest it, it starts to grow into a large number. And then watch out for the materialism because it does have a grip on our lives. Materialism is what causes you to spend and get into debt and not budget because you want and you crave and you need every single thing that's out there. Our society is built on that principle. It's not God's principle. That's all by way of review. I put a small footnote up there because there's something we're not covering, but I want to make note of it. We're not going through the spiritual disciplines in this talk, but one of the spiritual disciplines is particularly applicable to materialism, and that's the discipline of simplicity. There are some people that struggle with materialism to the point that they feel that they should learn the discipline of simplicity. And that discipline is all about shedding things from our lives that are not necessary for the kingdom. Looking, it's almost like budgeting to a higher extreme. Looking very carefully at our lives and not just saying, where can I cut, but asking every single thing down the list, what could I live without? What is absolutely necessary to sustain me in this life? Now, I'm not talking about being like an ascetic all the way to the end where you're living in like, you know, wearing one of those brown robes like a monk and saying, that's all I need. I'll eat bread, water, and have a brown robe. Like, I'm not going that far. But people who practice the discipline of simplicity will try to live with a family that only has maybe one car. Maybe they won't wear as many different clothes. Maybe they'll learn to live with the same amount of different things. Maybe they'll use recycled stuff. Whatever it takes, they're trying to simplify their life. 
and try to get rid of all the trappings of materialism. So we're not doing a series on spiritual disciplines, but I wanted to point out that that's a very powerful discipline that you may want to look into on your own if materialism is something that's got a grip on you. That's where we've been. Next slide. I want to keep things in focus, though, so I want to make this point very clear. It's been made clear as I've listened to the CDs and gone back a little bit over the last few weeks, but I want to make sure that I've communicated this very clearly. I am not advocating that you do only one thing in your whole life, and that's build wealth in a kingdom account for Christ. What I'm saying is you can do that in parallel with a number of things, and by parallel I mean simultaneously. You should be doing all of these things, or at least most of them, as many as you can do. You should be tithing to the church. Okay, I'm not saying don't tithe to the church, just keep it in an interest-bearing account growing over time, because the church needs money today. So whatever church you call home, tithe to the church, because it needs money. Support missions, missionaries, and ministries. There's ongoing missionaries right now all over the world that need money today, not in 40 years. I mean, it'd be great that you build an account for them so you can give away millions of dollars in 40 or 50 years, but today you can start the discipline of just giving them 5 bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or whatever you can afford. Getting out of credit card debt is something you should be doing simultaneously now, not just to build the wealth, but just to be free from bondage. Paying off student loans and home mortgage loans faster, just again, so you can get out of the the bondage. Setting up the kingdom account, that's what we've been talking about. Yes, do that simultaneously. Do a personal savings account too. Why just stop with the kingdom account? As long as you're giving money to God, put money aside for your own savings. It's all God's money anyways, it's just in a different account. You can prepare for retirement. Somebody asked me, like, should we be doing this instead of preparing for retirement? No, you should be doing them all, if you can. Because God has an interest in your retirement, too. If you're able to retire and you have funds for retirement, that means that you're not going to be in need and want. That means that you're not going to be bonded or bounded in this world by what you have to do with a social security check. You have enough money because you've retired wisely to spend the rest of your life touring around for Christ. I just met a guy this morning. He came up after the service and he introduced himself because he wanted some legal help on a matter. And he said to me, uh, he retired eight years ago from being a police officer, but he has enough money saved up that basically he's a traveling missionary. And he had just kind of a new guy, a new song, and he was trying to introduce himself. And we just kind of met through a random chance occurrence. But he started telling me a little bit about his life. And I thought, that's so cool. I mean, he, you know, for eight years he's been doing whatever God tells him to do. Now he's not constantly on the mission field. He goes here and there wherever God wants him to go and he does certain things. But I thought... That's great. The guy didn't even look that old. You know, I mean, he couldn't have been 60. I mean, I don't even think he was 60. He just had figured out a way to get his finances in order, retire early. Maybe he retired at 50 and he's just been traveling around doing what God wants him to do. So God does have an interest in your retirement account. If you have one and you're able to retire early enough to spend the rest of your years doing what God wants you to do, I think he'll be happy with that. The last thing is being on guard against materialism. You're doing all these things simultaneously is the goal. And the bottom line is we're looking to be financially free for the kingdom and for our king. All right, that brings us to tonight about giving. Every time you hear a talk about giving, we're talking about, should I give 5%, 10%? Tonight, we're talking about the 100%. We're talking about all your money. Not about how to give all your money away, although that would be ultimately the goal at the end of your life, I hope. But just about giving in general. I want you to ask some questions about giving. First question, next slide, is to whom should I give? Now I want to look at this passage carefully because you guys are very familiar with it. So I'm going to read some scripture to kick us off into understanding 
a passage that's commonly used to explain to whom we should be giving. And I want to critique it just a little bit. So bear with me. We're entering into a little bit of unknown territory here for some of you. Matthew 25, 31 to 46 says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom is prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whenever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. In the church we use that passage a lot, the least of these, to remind us that we need to be taking care of people around the world who are sick, in prison, who are the ones who are poor, who are hungry. And it's almost like we lay this passage on them kind of as a guilt trip because we say, you got to do this because here's what happens if you don't. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What do you guys make of that passage? Anyone want to throw some comments about it? Is that a good reason for us to be giving because uh, we don't want to be the goats? We want to be more like the sheep? What's, what's going on here? I mean, is it a little harsh to you that because maybe we didn't care for our brothers in foreign countries, like we might uh, get thrown out into the eternal fire? Anyone struggle with this? The reason I bring this passage up and throw it in front of you is because I want you first to be thinking people. In almost every talk I've heard about giving and poverty, which is kind of where we're starting to move our talk, you hear this passage. People get up and say the least of these, and they show a baby withered away, you know, in some country far away, and suddenly we're supposed to reach into our wallets and give, give money. And I'm not saying we're not supposed to do that. I'm saying I want you to think for a moment. Does this passage say that you're going to be accursed if you don't do the following things? Well, on its face it seems to, but I want to just throw something out because I've heard this enough in giving talks that since I'm the one who's finally getting to talk about it, I kind of found in doing research that this is not exactly what this talk is about or what this sermon that he's giving is about this example. Go to the next slide. Here's from a commentator about this chapter. I'm going to read to you what the commentator says. Just get a sense of this and see if it rings true. 
The popular view among theologians is that this text does not refer to treatment of the poor or those in need. Although on other grounds it would be entirely consistent with Jesus' tradition and biblical ethics as a whole. Rather, in the context of Jesus' teaching, especially in the context of Matthew, this parable addresses not serving all the poor, but receiving the gospel's messengers. Likewise, one treats Jesus as one treats his representatives, who should be received with hospitality, food, and drink. The king thus judges the nations based on how they have responded to the gospel of the kingdom, already preached to them before the time of his kingdom. The passage also implies that true messengers of the gospel will successfully evangelize the world only if they can embrace poverty and suffering for Christ's name. The horrifying conclusion is the damnation of people who did not actively embrace messengers of the gospel, but nevertheless were oblivious to how they had offended God. The goats thus depart into eternal fire, the worst possible conception of hell, but tragically God had not originally created them for the fire or the fire for them. Rather, it has been prepared by God for the devil and his angels. The reason I'm attacking this is because I want us to have the right heart for giving. The wrong heart for giving appears to be a fear of damnation. The wrong reason to give is because Jesus is going to come back and separate the sheep from the goats and say, Sheep, goats. And if you're on the wrong side, you didn't give enough, you didn't take care of the poor enough, you didn't actually not be material enough, you were too material, you were too greedy, and therefore you belong in damnation. And a lot of people read the passage this way, and it was interesting to me in doing research on what the commentator says that that is not actually what Jesus is saying. He's actually saying damnation will come to those who don't hear the gospel message. It's just worded a little differently that it's very easy for us to slip into the idea that if we don't do things that Jesus wants us to do in terms of the poor and those incarcerated and those things, that that means we're automatically disqualified whether we knew it or not. By the way, I don't totally agree with the commentator. What the commentator is saying here is that contextually, back during the time of Jesus, If you received the gospel message, you would open your home to people, you would feed them, clothe them, you know what I mean? You would treat his disciples in a certain way that showed you would actually believe the message. If you didn't, you would shut the door, not feed them, not clothe them. So what he was saying to sheep and goats was not, you fed the poor in Africa and you didn't. He was saying, you received my messengers and my people and treated them well and you didn't. You rejected the gospel, therefore there's nothing to save you. The reason I don't totally agree with the commentator on this, but I want you guys to wrestle with it because it's out there. You're going to hear this sermon for the rest of your life. So at least learn to wrestle with it today. Is it's possible that's true because it does seem harsh that you would lose salvation just because you didn't feed the poor. That's inconsistent with Jesus' message of salvation. But it's not inconsistent with Jesus' message in in the parable of Lazarus at the gate, for example, who the rich man didn't do anything wrong or evil he was just ignorant of the needs of a man sitting at his gate. And then, when we, and then Jesus tells us in the next life, one sitting in hell and one sitting in heaven. And there's no indication that he's sitting in hell because it was a bad man. He just was ignorant of the needs of those who were outside. So I wouldn't be totally scot-free saying, you can't read this and say, hey, we should just ignore the poor because we also know that even the commentators are admitting that Jesus' ethic and his beliefs 
would mandate that we care for the poor and the sick and the needy and the incarcerated and the naked and all those people. Ben. Even if the commentator is right about that, that there's other grounds in the scripture for taking care of uh, children. Yeah, I think that's why maybe, maybe when I was reading it, I was reading it too fast, but it was basically saying that the, the exact statement was the popular view among theologians is that this text does not refer to the treatment of the poor, although on other grounds, meaning in other scriptural places, it would be entirely consistent with Jesus' traditions and teachings. I mean, the first question we're trying to answer is, to whom shall I give? But I want to make sure that we're not misled by a passage that may or may not direct us to whom we're supposed to give. Nonetheless, if you look at this next slide, I'm going to say, to whom shall we give? All of these people would be qualified, in my opinion. Here's some of the people I think. Your local church is one. Again, missions and missionaries, poverty relief, disaster relief, ministries. By the way, these are in no order. Your family. You know what? I've been convicted to even learn that providing for your family is something that's biblically commanded. Your children. Solomon says a wise man leaves a good inheritance for his children. It's something that we're almost commanded by biblical wisdom to do with our money. And then you can add these people, the needy, the sick, the hungry, the lost, the incarcerated, the orphaned. You can add all those people to the list. Because I think that we need to free up a little bit our concept of to whom we're supposed to give. I'm going to free up tonight to give more than you think you're supposed to. But before we get there, I want to free up who you're supposed to give. Give to almost anybody that's out there. Remember, Jesus, I always used this guiding principle about giving. Jesus said, if someone asks you for your coat or your outer garment, give them also your shirt as well. And I think that's the convicting part about giving for me. I used to think I'd see a homeless guy, i go, I don't know, do I give him the two bucks? Is he going to drink? Is he? You know what, when the guy asked me, I was starting to become convicted that using the excuse of, I know he's just going to go drink, was my excuse not to give him money. Yes, it's probably true he's going to go drink, and yes, it's probably true that I should not be contributing to somebody who's already an alcoholic. But I wasn't really concerned about him. I was concerned about my two bucks. And I used to use that verse to convict me that when someone says, when someone asks you for this, give them even more, is what Jesus was telling us. That's the kind of freedom in giving we're supposed to have. There are people who will be very angry with me because they think, like, you're just contributing to the problem. But I think the problem is bigger than the little problem they're talking about. Their, their problem is alcoholism, maybe, or, or they're, they're going to use it for drugs or for prostitution or whatever. I think the problem is that the guy's living on the street or that there's a person dying of AIDS in some country. I mean, that's the problem. And the fact that I may not be solving the problem by giving them two bucks, but like not giving him is not solving the problem either because they're still on the street. My heart bleeds for some of these people. I mean, I think some of them, I look at them and I think, you're on the street, you're at the end of the rope, you're totally desperate, and you want to buy a drink? Like, good. <laughs> I mean, fine, if that makes you happy. I mean, I, I can't offer you anything else, you know? I should offer you something else. I live in a house, and I have warm beds and extra rooms, and I haven't been able to get myself to offer you that, but at least here's some money. Some people would tell you that's totally wrong. I, I think for me, the point I'm trying to make is not, is it right to give money or is it wrong to give money? I think the, the bigger point that we have to really be honest with ourselves is a lot of times we say it's wrong to give money because we don't want to give the money. If the homeless person came up and said, give me 20 bucks, you think, well, what are you going to do with it? 
He goes, well, I'm going to put it towards my college education fund or whatever. And he totally was going to do it. You'd still think of reasons why you wouldn't want to give it to him, you know? Or I'm going to use it to get a, a, a hotel for the night so I can sleep indoors tonight. We would still be struggling inside with whether to give it to him or not. Not because we didn't believe him. Maybe that's part of it, but because we don't want to give up the 20 bucks. So there are people who are wiser than me that would say, you should walk with the person and go and check them into the hotel, and then you know that your money is going for sure. And that's good wisdom. Or instead of giving them the two dollars, you know, if they want a drink, you should like walk over to the 7-Eleven and buy them whatever non-alcoholic drink and like hand it to them, you know, and anything else they want. And that's good advice. But I just look at my own heart a lot of times, and the reason I wasn't doing that was not because I was worried about what they were going to do. I was just worried what I would do if I gave them the two bucks or the five bucks, because now it wasn't in my pocket anymore. And that's what we have to overcome. How shall we give? We just covered to whom. How? This is what Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward. Notice, first time he uses the word reward. From your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward. There it is again. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that, you, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. There it is a third time. How do you give? Basically, this is a principle we all know growing up in the church. We're not supposed to give as hypocrites do by showing off that we give, but to do it in secret. Not to know what's going on and who's your biggest givers. I like that New Song practices a discipline that the pastors and staff don't know who gives money at the church. I mean, they know for tax purposes because they let people like Lena record it without letting anybody else know who's giving and who's not. So the receipts go out and people get them, but the staff and the elders and the pastors don't actually know. So they don't treat people with favoritism or not. They minister to everybody equally and let the congregation give the way they want. That, to me, is a great way to practice this discipline. We should practice the same discipline. Okay? We should not brag about our giving. We should not make giving a big deal. We should not make giving even something. But notice that he's talking about rewards. There's the, we're starting now to move down to something that Jesus is going to tell us. Giving equals rewards. Don't give in public because if you give in public, you get your reward already. What's your reward? Fame and notoriety. Oh, that guy's so cool. He gives a lot of money. There's your reward. No reward in heaven because you already got it on earth. You cashed in early. You want to cash in for the cheap reward? Give a building or something with your name on it. You know? The John J. Selback Sunday School Room. You know? There it is. Okay? You got your reward on earth because everybody's going to walk by and go, damn, I must have some money, man. And then you feel good. You walk by the building every day and go, I gave a building. Okay? No reward in heaven. I'm back to living in the projects when I get to heaven, all right? Because I cashed in early. You want to live with rewards in heaven? Give, give a lot, give secretly, give out of the right attitude. But notice he uses the word reward like three times. I know when we did our series on heaven, we were kind of troubled by this whole rewards concept a little bit, and some people still are. 
But if you don't know this, hear it now. When you go to heaven, there will be rewards. People will be rewarded unequally, depending on what we did in this life. It's not going to affect your salvation. You believe in Jesus, you're going. But when you get there, there might be a few more goodies under the Christmas tree for you than somebody else, or vice versa, depending on what you did in this life, because Jesus talks about rewards. Keep that in the back of your mind for a moment, because we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a second. Next slide. How should I give some more verses for you from the Bible? 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's three different things in that verse that we always pick out in church, but I want to at least pick them out. One is, the whole prosperity gospel in the church is based on this, he who reaps what he sows kind of doctrine. If you don't know what the prosperity gospel is, it's a popular way in the church these days that God's trying to bless you, he's trying to make you rich. He wants to give you good things in this life, and it's all about God blessing you and giving you money and power and wealth and all these great things. So people go to church and clap their hands because why? God's trying to bless them. And I'm not saying God doesn't bless and that God doesn't give you good things, but it ignores the fact that in this life there's some hardships and that God also sometimes tests us and that God might walk us through difficult times just to build our character. But look here also in verse 7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Keep that in your heart tonight, because at the end, I'm going to show you what I think of the formula of what it is to give. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. And of course, we all know God loves a cheerful giver. You know, that means that when the offering plate comes by, you're smiling bigger than anybody else, right? Is that what that means? You know, you're smiling so big so they know you're giving a big fat check, huh? Getting your reward now early by smiling a lot. Or is it just that we smile a lot in church for the heck of it? Because we're silly and goofy and we're embarrassed and awkward around each other. Randy Alcorn, in his book, he, he's written a book called The Treasure Principle, which is the, most, the highest selling book on giving. And it's also out of his book, Money, Possession, and Eternity. The Treasure Principle is this. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead of you. All right, so we all know the first part. Everybody's all walking around the earth going, well, you can't take any of it with you. But Randy's like, the second part is, but you can send some of it ahead of you. And that is, if you give and if you do the good deeds you're supposed to do, you are literally translating the money in this life, like a currency exchange, into the rewards that are going to come later. But you have to do it for the right purpose. So there's the trick. You can't be doing it thinking, ah, I'm going to store up as much as I can so when I get to heaven I can finally beat Dave Seattle and live in a bigger house than him. huh? Because I know I'm going to be living in a project and he'll be having a mansion. I'll be like... Because when I was on earth, man, I had it. But earth was only like 60, 65 years. Now he's going to have it forever. I don't understand how there's no envy in heaven. Because I'm going to be walking down the street going, how did he get that house? That guy wasn't in the worship team. He didn't even show up on Sundays. Why can we? Oh, man. I'm not sure how it all works, but I'll figure it out when I get there. Again, here's from Matthew one more time. This is about leading right up into the rich fool. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. He's saying, store up treasure in heaven. It's like, how do I do that? It's by taking your treasure on earth and giving as much away and translating that into rewards in heaven. It's a currency exchange. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, if you look at this, this part... 
this where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Go to the next slide. Let's focus on just that little verse for a second. When I began this series, I told you the first principle of this verse. You can always tell the condition of our soul and what a person truly cares about by where they spend their money. You want to see what somebody cares about? Watch what they spend their money on. And we, we covered that almost in the first week, that that's how you know money is a spiritual litmus test for us. You can tell the condition of someone's soul. But here's the corollary to that. If you want to learn to be interested in something or someone, spend money on that particular person or thing, and your interest will follow. What that means is, right now, if I asked you, how much is Microsoft trading on the stock market? Do you know? Anyone know? Anyone know what Microsoft's trading at? Anyone care? What if you had a thousand shares of Microsoft, though? Wouldn't you know kind of on a daily basis how it was doing? If you had money in Intel, or if you're a day trader like Eric, who's like watching the, you know, the margins, you know, whatever he's doing, you're going to know what the value of those stocks are. Because why? Because you have money in it. If I told you to invest in real estate in a certain market, and say, I'm going I'm to ask you to invest $200,000 in a certain home in a certain market, you'd know about every home in that market, how much it was worth. Okay? Where your money is, you're going to follow in interest. Okay? So the first part is definitely true. That you want to find out where a man's heart is or where his soul is and what he cares about, follow the money. But the second one is also true. It's a corollary. You want to get interested in something, put some money into it. You don't care about African children dying? Most of us don't, because as soon as we're done watching the movie, we go back to our regular lives. But start sending 30 bucks a month to Africa and then every time you see something in a newspaper about Africa, I guarantee it'll catch your attention. You want to support global missionaries as they translate the Bible into new languages that they've never heard of before? Start giving money to those kind of groups and watch. You'll see that every time you see something in the world about the Bible, about getting to a new group, you're going to be interested. Why? Because your money is going there. You'll get interested in what you invest in. If you invest in people, in ministries, in missionaries, in missions, in churches, in whatever you invest in, your heart will start to grow for that. So one way to jumpstart your heart for something that you might not have a heart for, like maybe you don't have a heart for the homeless. Maybe you don't care. Start giving to the LA mission or the Union Rescue Mission. Start watching them week after week and see that now every time you see a homeless person or you see something about the homeless, that your mind isn't just for a second taken over there to figure it out. What's it all about? So how should I give? Well, one way to give like I said, is to invest your interest in something. That's how you should give. Because if you want a heart for something, put some money into it. Remember, Jesus said this on the next slide, talking about the rich fool. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. There's that reward thing again. I mean, it's like every time we're talking about reward, it's talking about giving. He's saying to the guy, again, he just finished talking about the rich fool, saying, what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And then immediately he transitions into this, for the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, is going to come in his Father's glory at the end of time with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Now, I know Jesus is not saying, I'm going to give you salvation depending on what you've done, because we know the entrance requirements for salvation is simply belief in Jesus and accepting his grace, and that's salvation. So what is he talking about? It's the same reward concept. 
i.e. see our six CD series on heaven and you'll understand the reward concept in more detail. But there it is again. What translates into kingdom treasure? Giving on earth and giving recklessly, giving freely, giving as much as we can, giving lovingly, whatever you want to add to it, that kind of giving. Because he's saying it's not going to benefit you to hang on to it. Give it away. And then I will come and give you your reward. So that leaves us with a question. We've kind of talked about to whom we should give, how much, I'm sorry, how should I give, but now we've got to talk about how much should I give. Here's kind of a multiple choice test for you. I don't want you to answer it yet. I just want you to think about these. How much should I give? The first one is 10% because that's what the Bible says. Check that one off if you want. Number two, check off this box. Whatever makes me happy so that I am a cheerful giver. Number three, everything I have in the world, like the widow that gave away her last two pennies, that's what I should give. Number four, I should give and give until it hurts. It's a good standard. Number five, the bigger the need, the more I should give. I should measure it by something outside of me. And of course, the number one, the number six one, which is the equivalent of DK on any standardized test. You guys remember DK? Don't know? I think they had that on every standardized test just to find out who they should flunk in the class. Because if you didn't know to guess between 1, 2, 3, and 4, and you went to 5 like DK, don't know the answer, I think, I think just checking off DK, you should just flunk the whole exam right there. The equivalent of DK and also the equivalent that most college students would actually respond with was, what? Huh? I'm not exposed to a give, am I? Here's the answer. I'm not going to give it to you in a box. I'm going to let you decide the answer for yourself by watching this clip. A lot of times in Exodus or in any place, you guys are going to look for hard and fast rules. In fact, I'm a little bit bummed that Angela isn't here because Angela always wants to push the envelope to see how far the rule goes. Where is the exception? Where does the rule get goofy? We always look for these black and white rules. But I'm going to give you a rule tonight that's a little different. I want you to imagine yourself at the end of your life. I want you to imagine yourself having lived your life and then as you're going up with God, you get to glance back down at all the people that we didn't get to help, that we didn't reach, that we didn't minister to, that we didn't go on missions for. And that would be the standard as you're kind of going up with Christ and he turns to you and says, so how do you think you did? Use that as a measure, I think, because that's probably the moment of clarity for most of us. We live in denial. There's no doubt about it. We go about our lives, everything's good, and we want to live in denial because it's so hard to deal with the fact that millions of people are dying in Africa. It's so hard to deal with the fact that when a flood comes in many countries, 70,000 people die. It's hard to deal with the fact that an earthquake could knock out that many people and that they don't even know the gospel and just boom, they're just gone. It's hard for us to deal with people who don't have enough to eat. So we just kind of go back into our lives. Last week when we talked about materialism, here's the question you were asking. Okay, I understand that it's wrong to be material. But how much should I adjust my life not to be material? And I wouldn't give you an answer. The answer comes tonight. 
It's not how much should you adjust your life so you're not material. The answer is, how much do you need to adjust your life to give enough that you feel at the end of your life you gave enough? The clip we're about to watch is from Schindler's List. If you haven't seen the movie, let me set this up for you. Schindler was basically a wartime profiteer during World War II. He was watching the Nazis kill Jews in the concentration camps. And he came up with an idea that he would buy some of the Jewish laborers from the work camps to work his factory. And his secret goal was to save their lives from the death camps by buying them and convincing the Germans that he needed them to make munitions for the German army. And so he started to buy more and more people. And by the end of his time, when World War II is finally over, he's managed to employ and save about 12 or 1,300 people from the death camps. And as we were about to watch this, he is now, the war is over. The Americans have moved in, and they're freeing the camp where they're at. And his factory, he's now just had his last day where he's told everybody, it's over, you now should go home, the war is done. But I want you to notice how he feels about the 1,300 people that he has saved. I could have got more. I could have got more. I don't know if I just... I could have got more. Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. If I made more money, No idea. If I just there will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. This car. Oh God, what about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Did you hear what he said? I could have made more money if you saw how much money I wasted. And for everything, he looks around him and suddenly his car, his pin, his coat, 
meant more people who could have lived. It's hard to have that kind of perspective all the days because we live in denial. Even after watching a movie like this that moves us 20 minutes from now, we'll be laughing and having a good time and forgetting what the message of a movie like this is about. So when someone says, how much should I give? Is it a matter of a percentage in the Bible? Is it a cheerful giving thing? Or is it just really that on our hearts, we should be considering when we sit at the end of our life the way he's sitting at the end of his Reflecting over how many good things he did do, is it going to be enough? Now I'll tell you that even if you saved a million people, it's still never enough. But what he was wrestling with was a deep, genuine desire where he could see, literally for every few dollars that he could have produced, he would have saved a life. I don't think in our lives we'll ever get to see that kind of Maybe one for one where we think for every hundred dollars I would have given, I might have saved a life, but you never know. There are plenty of ministries out there that tell you you can feed a child on 30 cents a day and you do the math. I'm sure you can afford that and maybe you keep that child alive so you can do that kind of math somehow. But the more important thing is every day in my heart it bleeds because people are dying, not just of hunger, but of spiritual hunger. They don't know the Lord. They don't know Jesus Christ. They're going to wake up in judgment and they're going to be standing there bewildered about why didn't anybody tell me? What's going on? I don't understand. And this is a hard moment for us to accept, but when we're going to spend all this time talking about money and how to give kingdom wealth and build it, we have to at least come to the end part where we give it away and we realize that the motivation for us to make this money is not just because Jesus is going to say good and faithful servant. That's part of it. But the motivation is going to come when we come and examine our lives at the end of that time or when Jesus examines our lives and we give account to him and he says, what did you do with my money? And we're going to say, but Lord, I, I, I was able to produce this much or I was able to save this many. And I think even in our own hearts, we're going to look and they're not going to appear to be that many. Because even a man who saved 1,100 people in the last moments of his reflection realized he could have saved more. That's the measure that I hope we adopt about giving. I hope we adopt a measure that shows us inside that this world, the way God looks at it from his eyes, is so precious to him. And we just happen to be blessed to live in the most affluent nation that's ever lived. And we have an obligation, I think, to use that wealth, national wealth, just the same as personal wealth, to try to do what we can to save as many as we can during our lifetime. It's a hard word, and I know that denial is going to creep in in a moment, and we forget about it, but that's the standard. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 9, and verse 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. I'm hoping that after watching that clip or keeping in mind that someday you're going to face the account with Jesus, not in a negative way, not in a guilt way. Look at how they were assuring him the whole time. You did enough. You did so much. You did more than everybody else. But still our own soul is going to ache. Even when Jesus said, you did so well, you're still going to ache for the people that didn't make it. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. I pray tonight that your heart opens in a new way to understand that it's going to ache someday for all those that we couldn't save. 
We still have time. We still have time. Let's pray. Lord, we want to lay at your feet every kingdom possession we have, everything that is yours. It's all yours. So often, Lord, when we talk about giving, we talk about percentages, and yet we're fooling ourselves because you gave it to us and you could take it away. It all ultimately belongs to you, and we come naked into this world, and naked we will leave. We will stand before you with nothing but the treasures that we are able to store up in heaven. Lord, you show us the wisdom of those treasures, but tonight, Lord, in a heavy word, I pray that your Holy Spirit convict us about something even more important, and that is those who are less fortunate who will not be in your kingdom, or those who are less fortunate who will suffer in this world and die because we never got to them to comfort them. So, Lord, I pray tonight that you would give us your heart, not ours, your eyes, not ours, heart and eyes that are constantly searching, Lord, to do more and to do better. Wisdom, Lord, to understand that you, having purchased our life, have left us with nothing to do but take care of our brothers and sisters, to bring them to salvation in you and also to bring them food sometimes, Lord, to bring them shelter. And that really, Lord, is the ultimate thing that you've left us. Yes, Lord, for them to receive your word and join us in heaven. Lord, it's a hard thing to do, to constantly think about all the things that are going on in this world. And that's why we need your eyes and your heart, Lord, so that we can do that. Thank you, Lord, for giving us time still and life left ahead of us that we can change our ways and care more for our brothers and sisters and care more about the eternal things to come. Thank you, Lord, that we are not tonight on our deathbeds. We are not tonight reflecting back on our entire lives, but that we still have life ahead. May we use it wisely for your kingdom purposes. Renew us from this day forward. In your precious name, amen. Mm -hmm.